0: amen. So I'm excited to just introduce uh, Pastor Jason Toth. He's a pastor from a local church in Holbrook uh, called New Hope Baptist. And I got to know Pastor Jason uh, uh, very well this past year. And me and Stephanie, we've both been blessed by him and his family. Um, so I'm just excited. And without further ado, here's Pastor Jason. He's been a great friend and a great mentor to me. So, Well, thank you guys. I guess we'll figure out this together how all this goes. Um, This is going to be very unique. Now I wonder how many people that are watching at home or abroad are sitting on their couch in their pajamas. And raise your hand if you're in your pajamas. That's what I want to know. Actually put feedback in the link if you're in your pajamas. Also put feedback in if you got dressed for church this morning. I'd like to know that too. Um, I apologize for the New Hope feed if it's not working. Something is going a little awry. I just went and updated the our homepage to link to new village's facebook page so the facebook live will be there now there's not much of an audience here you can't see that but there's about four or five six people here spread more than 6 feet apart um that are just running the service and and uh that's going to be very unique to be able to preach to an empty crowd and uh but to everybody that's live there so We're thankful for all this technology. I hope to look in the camera a lot. I don't know, I might be looking at the walls or something, uh, but I do thank you all for inviting me. Uh, I want to thank New Village from the bottom of my heart for the opportunity to preach here today. I want to thank New Hope for allowing me to preach here today. Um, Our churches did VBS together this summer, and it went phenomenal. I, I think the hand of God was upon it, and very... Very grateful for that. And today, um, we get to preach like this together. And we'll see how it all goes. I mean, we're going to learn as you're learning through this. I hope uh, the bandwidth of everybody's home connection doesn't fail you today. And if it is, we'll have recordings of things. Uh, But man, I want everybody uh, who's tuning in with us today... We, know, we understand we're in the most of unusual circumstances. It, it truly is a crazy time, and you can't find uh, anything at the stores, and there's panic, and you hear everything else. And it, it really is a historical day, especially today. I would imagine that today, especially for churches, that there are more churches closed today than are open. I, I'd imagine. I don't know if that's true, but I think that's true. And I would imagine that today there are more people watching online church services Than have ever in one particular time in American history. Now, again, I don't know that to be for sure, but I imagine that's to the case. I imagine that most churches are closed, and I'd imagine that more people um, than ever before are tuning in online somewhere. I hope you're tuning in today um, for that. I hope the internet doesn't crash on us all. But as a side note, before we get into the Word of God this morning of what we're going to preach about, I want to take a moment to lay aside all of your anxieties. I want want you to consider this this morning. I want you to lay aside all of your fears, all of your anxieties, and I want you to cast your attention on Christ. The Bible says in Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. And our eyes need to be fixated on God in this very troubling and unique time From where our help comes. Now we know as believers where our help comes from. There's a lot of people out there who have no idea where their help is going to come from. They have no idea what's going to happen with their job. They have no idea what's going to happen with their health. They have no idea what's going to happen in this country in the days to come. But you and I, we don't know those answers either. But we do know the one that does know. We do have God to look to. And I want you to lay aside all your fears today. And I want you to cast your eyes from whence cometh our help, our help cometh from the Lord. Psalm 61, verse 2, the Bible says, From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I'd imagine that this morning and the weeks leading up to this and the weeks after this, there's going to be a lot of people's hearts that are overwhelmed. And the Bible says that when our heart is overwhelmed, psalmist wrote, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the the rock that is higher than I. And we certainly know that that rock is Jesus Christ. It's not just a creator. It's not just a God. It's not just a religion. It is the way, the truth, the life. It is Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you're fretting or fearful. I don't know if you're cautiously observing the times. Or maybe you're brash and bold and you think, man, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like doing. But no matter how you feel, no matter what you think, no matter what confusion has come your way, you can be assured that the answer is not in the circumstances. The answer is in Christ. Now I want to bring two stories to your mind to add perspective. And again, this is the pre-sermon, so this is free. You get this before you uh, get what we're going to look at this morning. I want to bring you to two stories in the New Testament just briefly. And again, I'm taking this time to address this because it is a most unique time. And I want you to think of two times in the New Testament that the disciples were on a boat in water. The first time, the disciples were on a boat crossing the sea, and Jesus had told them to get in that boat. He said, let's get in this boat together and let's cross the sea. And it wasn't very long before they were in the midst of the sea that Jesus went to sleep. And while he is sleeping, the storm came And it hit them so hard that the Bible literally says that they were in jeopardy. Now these disciples were not novice shipmen, were they? Some of them were professional fishermen. And in their profession, they've seen all kinds of storms, and yet this storm was so bad that it shook their faith. And the most seasoned of fishermen, they ran to where Jesus was in the back of the boat, and they began to wake him up, and do you remember what they cried out unto him? Master, carest not thou that we perish? Literally, don't you care that what's going on? Don't you care we're about to die and you have not been involved? But remember how Jesus responded. He arose. He called them, O ye of little faith. He rebuked the wind and He calmed the storm. And I want to tell you this morning, don't worry, Jesus has got this. None of this has taken him by surprise. And neither will the economic fallout be beyond his control. He will provide. He is able to do whatever he wants to do, and he is in control. He is still on the throne. I want to bring you briefly to a second story, and this time the disciples were on the boat, but Jesus was not with them. He told them to get on the boat, and he went up and to pray. And and as they were in the middle of the night on the boat, crossing the sea, the wind was contrary to them. That means it was blowing. It probably wasn't as bad as the first storm. But as they're trying to get across the sea with the wind contrary to him, they notice that there's someone walking on the water, and and immediately they're frightened. But then quickly Jesus says, it is I. What a comfort that would have been. Be of good cheer. Be not afraid. And almost immediately, Peter steps up to the plate, and he says, hey, Jesus, if it's you, if you would allow, bid me to walk out there with you. And Jesus allows it. And for the first couple steps of that storm, Peter is walking out by faith. His faith is strong. But it's not long before his faith gives out to fear. It's not long that his faith starts giving out to fear. The circumstances surrounding him and he began to sink now why well because the circumstances dictated over focus on Christ when he had his eyes on Christ he was fine but when he began to take his eyes off and say man the storm is is coming the waves are big how am I able to walk on this water I'm not able to sustain this what's going to happen it wasn't very long before he started to sink because his eyes got off of the Savior and got on the circumstances. Now, did Jesus let him drown? No. He picked them up and put him back on the solid rock again. My friend, it is troubling times, and you may be in the place where you're like, God, do you even care about us? How could you have allowed this to happen? Well, you have a God to cry out unto, and you have a God that can calm any storm. And you might be the one who is man by faith, by faith, by faith, and then you start looking around at how many people are getting sick or what the economic collapse may be or whatever other fear-induced thing society or media brings upon you, and now your faith is no longer on Christ alone. It is on circumstances, and you're beginning to panic. That might be where you're at. If you are... Don't worry, some of the best men in the Bible were right there. But what I would challenge you to do in this morning, in every time you feel a little bit riveted by fear, is to cast your eyes upon the Savior. I love that old hymn, Cast um, Your Eyes Upon Jesus. We have one who is the solid rock, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who measures out the universe in the span of His hand. One who knows how many hairs we have on our head, and He cares, and He is there for us. So just sit tight. Keep your eyes upon the hills from whence cometh our help. Our help cometh from the Lord. Now it's quite possible that you just tuned in this morning because you needed that type of encouragement. And if that's so, then praise the Lord. But That's not what we're looking at this morning, but I did want to address that because that was very of the time. It was very what people are probably dealing with. There's probably more questions than there are answers right now for most of people in the entire world. And this isn't just a New York thing. This isn't just a United States thing. This is a worldwide thing. And people in every culture are facing the same exact anxieties and situations that you and I are. Matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think there are people from Italy that are tuning in with us today. And if that's the case, ciao. I don't know if that's the right context of it, but I think it is. We're glad you're with us. And our hearts go out to you and everything that's going on in Italy. And our hearts go out to everybody who's been affected. And whether you know someone who's been affected or not yet, you probably soon will. And if you're sick, our prayers go out to you. I can promise you this, we've been praying. We've been praying not only for the situation, but for the individuals. And I promise you this, the Bible says, casting all our care upon him, for he careth for us. Jesus cares. And I'm glad you're with us today. Now, if you have your Bible, I want to turn your attention to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 in the New Testament. Now New Village Church is in the midst of a series on Philippians. And I want to tell you, I I feel quite honored to be invited to preach here and to be included in on their series. It could have been that they said, can you fill the pulpit for this particular day? But they said, can you fill the pulpit and be with us on this series? And I, I feel honored and I appreciate that. Now for those that are just jumping in, maybe you're from New Hope Baptist Church and you're saying, I've not been in the series of Philippians. We've we've been in the series of Nehemiah on Sunday morning and 2 Samuel on Sunday night. We uh, We just started Ecclesiastes on Thursday night. Let me catch you up to speed, or maybe you're just joining us for the very first time. And you've not been privy to any of this. Paul is writing the letter of the Philippians... He's writing to the church at Philippi from a Roman prison. He is in a Roman prison for preaching the gospel, for serving God. Now think about this. God calls him to serve him. He said, I want you to come and serve me. And in the midst of serving him, he is suffering drastically for the faith. And yet the theme of Philippians, or one of the themes and one of the key phrases in Philippians is joy in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord, theming rejoicing in the Lord. Now somebody in a Roman prison, which isn't like today's prison, it's got to be far worse. And he is writing to a church saying, hey guys, isn't this great? I want you to have joy in the Lord. I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Now it ought to be that somebody is telling Paul to rejoice in the Lord. Hey, keep your spirits up, buddy. It'll get better. This too will pass. But it's not that way. Paul is saying to everybody else, hey guys, don't you worry about me, you rejoice in the Lord. Matter of fact, it will come to be that at the end of Paul's life, he will be beheaded by Rome for preaching the gospel. And yet he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he is saying, rejoice in the Lord. That's the basic theme. And that's the difference that the peace and the presence of God makes in a believer. That as we walk with the Lord, it allows us to have joy in the Lord despite circumstances. Now, the whole world knows how to have joy because of circumstances. At a wedding, there's often a lot of joy because of the circumstances. When somebody goes on vacation, there's often a lot of thrill with that because of the circumstances. But there's a difference between the presence of God that allows us to have peace and joy and causes us to rejoice in the Lord always, despite our circumstances. Now much of the world falls apart when the circumstances fall apart. But believers don't have to when they have the Holy Spirit inside of them. When they walk close to God, God can give them the peace that passes understanding. Now all of that is Philippians chapter 4, and whoever gets to preach that, men, listen in, because that is a great chapter in the entire Bible chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul is addressing the Christian life and he, he is saying continue to live the Christian life, which isn't always easy. I, I want you to work, work out your salvation. I want you to, to do this as a Christian. Chapter 2, we have this great passage called the Kenosis Passage. Where Jesus said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or Paul said this, let this mind be in you. And said about Jesus, how he made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That where is the God of heaven, Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ is every bit God, as God the Father, as, as God the Holy Spirit. That he left his throne on heaven, came down here, took upon the form of a servant and became obedient unto death. Now, we're not going to repreach that. But death was a punishment for sin. It was a principality that was created because of sin. And yet Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of Christ in Him. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that humility was supposed to be an example for us to live humbly that that part of the Christian life is to be, that we're to be humble as let this mind be in you as it was in Christ Jesus. So now we come to chapter three. Look at Verse number one. The Bible says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, for for you it is safe. Paul uses the word finally here. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, when the preacher says, okay, in closing, that doesn't mean anything. When he says, and finally, that, I mean, I don't know what churches you're used to, but that might mean another half hour. That might not mean anything. And I want to tell you, though, Paul is closing up his book, and he is going to start landing the plane, as I like to call it. He's still got a whole lot to say. He's got all of chapter 3. He's got all of chapter 4. And many sermons could be preached on those two chapters alone. So finally doesn't mean, okay, we're about to sum it up in about a minute. People don't start zipping up their Bibles. It just means, okay, let me make some final remarks here. But I still have a lot to discuss. Notice the key phrase there that we talked about just a minute ago in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. It's a reminder One of the best ways of learning is repetition. And Paul says it over and over and over again, and he's not done saying it. Why? Because we're fickle people. We easily forget to rejoice in the Lord. I like what it said in in 1 Thessalonians where it says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now I will go out and say, it doesn't say be thankful for everything. You might not always be thankful but you can always give thanks. God, I don't know what is going on, and I'm not feeling the emotional euphoric uh, euphoria of being thankful, but I give you thanks because I know that is the will of God. Rejoice, I rejoice in you, Lord, knowing that uh, I count it all joy when I fall in diverse temptations because I know that the trying of my faith worketh patience. That's James chapter 1. And Paul is reminding him, finally, my brethren, finally, church, rejoice in the Lord. Now, we didn't have this planned to mention the phrase rejoice in the Lord amidst the pandemic. But God knew it. And we can come across this morning and say, hey, friends, across the world, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I'm not saying everything we see causes us to feel thankful. What I can tell you is that you can rejoice in who God is. And in the fact that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day for the forgiveness of our sins. And friends, you're going to hear about this in just a few minutes, but if you're out there, and if I were to ask you this question, if you were to die today, do you know for sure you're going to heaven, and you're not sure about that? Can I tell you that the Bible also says today is the day of salvation? Ecclesiastes says that the house of Mourning is better than the house of feasting, meaning that a funeral is better than a wedding. And we might say, why in the world would a funeral be better than a wedding? Because at a funeral, people consider the end and consider that one day it'll be their end, and it makes them think about eternity, and it makes them think about what will happen when I die. <clears throat> Maybe all this pandemic has caused you to wonder what's going to happen if you were to die, God forbid. And I want to tell you, we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. And knowing Christ as your Savior is the only thing that matters. Now Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He says, to write to you, write, or write, to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Uh, it's not a trouble to write to you. It's, it's not hard. It's my pleasure to do so. And to do so, actually a benefit, it's a safeguard for you. And and Paul's about to expound on some truths that are an absolute help and safeguard to all of us. So I want you to listen, no matter how experienced you are with the Bible, no matter how much you've read through this passage before, they're safeguards, they're helps, they're anchors that hold our ship from drifting away. They're truths that help renew our mind. Look at verse number two. Look at that first word. Beware. Beware is like a big watch out. Don't miss this. Pay attention. A big lights, camera, action, loudspeaker saying, hey, watch out for something. And what is that, that we're to beware of? The Bible says, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. He says, dogs, evildoers, and concision. Understand, he is not talking about the canine breeds. Be careful of them. Now, maybe you ought to. If you're up going up to a house and you see a big old dog, you might want to beware of dogs. These are not three groups of people. They are one group of people. So dogs was a name given to some of the evildoers, the evil workers, was a name given to, and we are understanding this, the concision. We're going to make, make sense of that in just a second. Beware of this group of people. In a nutshell, what you and I can understand them as is false teachers. Now what you'll notice if you're a student in the New Testament is that in just about every epistle that Paul writes in the New Testament, there is a warning of false teachers. But why would there be a warning of false teachers? Why would there be a beware of false teachers everywhere in the New Testament? Why wasn't one book enough? And the reality was because even though they were not very far from the time that Christ walked with them, taught them, and they were not far from the time the church started, there already were false teachers that crept in unawares. Already Satan started to attack the truths that are of the Bible. He started twisting them. I mean, he did in the Garden of Eden, remember what the Satan did as a serpent? He started to doubt God's Word. God did not say to not eat that tree. He knew that the minute you ate of that tree, you would become like him. And he is trying to withhold that truth from you. He doesn't want you to have a great time. He doesn't want you to enjoy life to the fullest. So we attack God's Word. Well, already here, by the time Philippians is written and the other epistles are written, false teachers had already gotten in. They already were starting to run rampant in the church. Now you can imagine if false teachers walked among church back then when the church was so close to Christ and so close to the beginning and origins and the purity of things, how much more do we face false teachers today? when they've had a couple thousand years to twist things. Now God inspired, in His Word, the warning to shout through every generation to watch out for false teachers. They're everywhere. Hey listen, I want to say something, just because a building has a cross and has some kind of meeting on a Sunday morning does not mean it's God's church. And just because they open some book up here or some anywhere anywhere uh, in, in the world and they say religious things does not mean they're not false teachers. Just because they have a television broadcast or an internet blog or vlog or internet ministry does not mean they're not false teachers. False teachers are really good at having big crowds. Now, Don't hear me say if you have a big crowd you're a false teacher. That, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is just because many follow doesn't mean they're not false teachers. Well, the question might arise, how can we know false teachers? And I'm going to get into the specifics of this type of false teacher in just a minute. But how can we know false teachers? This is a truth that you ought to know. How can we tell a false teacher from a true teacher of the gospel? Well, in brief, I always turn people's attention to the Breen church. The Berean church mentioned in the book of Acts. Paul came through, and he had just left Thessalonica, and he went to Berea, and he went there, and he was amazed at the people. Now, this is just a short little verse that people can gloss over. He said, those in Berea are more noble than those that are in Thessalonica, in that they search the Scriptures daily to see if the things were so. So what the Bereans did is that when they heard somebody teach, they took the Word of God and they began to examine it. Is this what the Bible says or is this what this man says? That means they looked at the Bible as their true source and only authority, not man. I don't know about you, but we don't believe here. That man is on the same authority. I don't care if he's a preacher. I don't care what his title is. He does not have the same authority as the Word of God. If you hear somebody who is teaching something that is clearly not biblical, but he's an amazing person, you ought not be confused at who's wrong. The Bible's always right. And when men err from the Bible... It's their error, not the Bible's. So the best way to know false teachers is to know the Bible. To know what's taught in the Bible. To understand the Bible. I heard this, I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard that in the FBI and places where they are studying counterfeit bills, they can't possibly teach every single act of counterfeiting out there. There's so many varieties. Now they'll teach some of the main ones. But the best way to teach somebody to identify a counterfeit bill is just to know the real one perfectly or as best as humanly possible. Same thing goes with the Bible. You ought to know the Bible so well that when someone takes something out of context, you immediately know that's not the context. Now getting back to the context that we have here in Scripture, who were these false teachers? Uh, Well, the, the, the real note here is when it says, Beware of the concision. Now, the what does that mean? Well, this was a group of believers, or not believers, let me strike that. These were a group of Jewish people who infiltrated the believers. They were called Judaizers. And they began to teach a false gospel. They began to teach that salvation was not by grace alone, but that believers had a hold to the Mosaic law. In order to be saved. So, yes, Christ, but also you have to keep the law. And in particular, you have to be circumcised. Now, if you know the New Testament, you know that Titus, uh, Paul told him, don't get circumcised. You're going to be working with Gentiles. Gentiles aren't circumcised. Don't get circumcised. So clearly we know that salvation did not require circumcision to solidify it. Let me be clear on something. Paul calls these people who got in and started twisting the gospel, saying, yes, I know you believe in Christ. Yes, I understand you've called on Him to save you from your sins. Yes, I understand that you look at Him as Savior, but you also have to keep the law. Otherwise, why would have you written it and why would Moses write it? You need to keep that law perfectly. Paul calls these people evil workers, dogs, Let me be clear on something. Salvation is by faith in Christ and Christ alone. Christ minus nothing. Christ plus nothing. Let me be also very clear. No work can ever, ever, ever be added unto salvation. None. That means nothing else can save. Faith alone saves. That means baptism does not save you. That means church membership does not save you. That means all the money given to every charity and every ministry in the world does not save you. All the moral living that people try to reform themselves to in order to save themselves, all the work, salvation, none of that saves whatsoever. And this group was introducing legalism into the church. Yeah, I know you need Christ, but you also need to do this, otherwise you're not saved. Can I also say this? Yes, there's evidence when you get saved, there's fruit. It's not always easy to me- be measured, so be careful. But what I am saying is this. There's groups out there that say, well, I know you said you're saved, but if you did this, you're not saved. Or if you don't look like this, you're not saved. Or if you don't adhere to this particular um, viewpoint, that's certainly not in Scripture. You're not saved. That's just another form of Judaizers. That's just another form of legalism. Now, I understand the fear. Someone just says, one, two, three, pray after me, and you're saved. We don't believe that either. That's easy believism. I don't believe that. There's got to be true repentance from the heart of sin unto Christ for salvation. But understand this. There is all different levels of people on different journeys. Some people are very immature in the faith, like the Corinthian church, and they they can just take the milk, and then there's some more advanced ones, like, like the church of Thessalonica and Berea, who are a little more advanced in that. We don't always know, but we do know this. We're saved by faith. No works, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. So if you're with anybody that's teaching anything else plus Christ saves, they're wrong. Because if anywhere could save, what in the world would Jesus come to die. He doesn't need our help to save us. He doesn't need our work. So Paul says to them, hey, Philippian church, I know you're good people, but be careful of the dogs that get in, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Be careful of the false teachers that get in there and twist the gospel in your hearts. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul says we are of the circumcision. Now, real briefly, if you understand the Old Testament, you understand that circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to call you out and and your seed will be my people. He was the father of the Jews. And that men might know that you're my people, circumcision will declare that, an outward sign of an inward work, of that calling. But in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that believers are circumcised, but not physically, not with hands, but in the heart. What he is saying, both there and here, is that we all who are children of God, because we have Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of us, we don't need the outward work of circumcision. We are the children of God if we have the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying, hey, listen, don't let anybody, Philippian church, don't let anybody talk you into being circumcised as a need for salvation. We are already circumcised in the heart. If you have Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you have salvation. We don't need that outward act. Now, the false teachers can't fathom faith in Christ alone. Paul says they have confidence in their flesh. People love to trust tangible, physical things more than faith alone. I don't know if they have infomercials anymore. I don't really watch uh, network television. But I remember many times when I was younger, being up in the middle of the night, and you put something on, and it, all that's on television is infomercials. Like hour-long, repetitive commercial trying to sell you something. Two items for $19.99. If you act now, we'll throw the third one in. Free shipping. And they show you how absolutely wonderful whatever they're selling is. And that it can't possibly be gotten anywhere else but through them. You know those things. You know if we had an infomercial. And we said here's, a, here's something that will, if you drink this, it will guarantee you a spot in heaven. Buy this now and I promise you, you'll go to heaven. I guarantee we'd sell some. But if we go to people and say, here's this gospel track, read this, believe what it says, and call on Christ, or here's the Bible, call on Christ to forgive you of your sins, and be saved, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. People say, nah. Why is it that I can sell something that people will buy for salvation, but the offer of the free gift is rejected? I mean, I know in, in, in the... In the uh, Filipino culture, there are some that, that, that kneel up on glass, up these long stairs, cutting up their knees to prove their sorrow for their sin in hope that that would absolve them. They, they literally crucify themselves, not under death, but under torture, to prove their sorrow for their sins to be absolved. And yet none of that absolves anybody. You could beat yourself up all day long and make yourself to suffer that won't save you. But if you call on Christ, turning from your sin to God, Father, forgive me. Lord, save me. I see you as my Savior. Please save me. That prayer of faith saves. But the false teachers couldn't fathom that. They wanted to trust in their flesh. They wanted to trust in their works. They wanted to trust in their holy exteriors. They wanted to trust what the Pharisees were trusting. Look how righteous we are. Look how good we act. Look how moral we live. Look at all of these things we do. And if you remember in in the Gospels, Jesus ridiculed them. He called them a generation of vipers, you hypocrites. They strain at gnats and yet swallow camels whole. Their outsides are like whitened sepulchers, but inside are dead man's bones. And those today who trust in their flesh for salvation, a work that they can do, they need to shed that and say, it's not by works which I can do, but His mercy, that's what saves. So my baptism is not going to save me, and my good works are not going to save me, but Christ alone can save me. Not my holy exterior. Not my trying to prove to everybody else how good I am. That doesn't save me. Remember what Matthew 7 says. There will be many in in that day who will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And in thy name cast out demons? Then will I profess unto them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. There's going to be a lot of people in the day of judgment who said, no, 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 I was in church, I did all these things, I served you here, I served you there, and yet because they did not have Christ and Christ alone, they were not saved. Many will say to me, in thy name. That's why it's so important to have the gospel, right? That's why it's not just okay if you go to a church. It's got to be a gospel preaching church where the gospel is clearly preached. Because work-based salvation churches send more people to hell than just about anywhere else. That's why Paul says they are dogs, they are evildoers. Beware of the concision. Because if you start believing them, everything can get twisted. And everybody that comes said, how do I be saved? Well, you need to be saved by Christ, but also circumcision. That is going to mess everything up. It's not works. And we who are truly say, we know we have no Isn't it amazing? Here's an amazing truth for believers. It's a sanctified truth. The closer we get to God, the further from God we realize we are. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Man, I'm getting closer to God, and the more God's holiness shines, the more my flesh and depravity glare. Oh. Why? Because there's nothing to boast in in our flesh. None. Do you think I deserve to be saved? Absolutely not. I deserve to be in hell. And not only do I not deserve to be saved, I have no idea why God would ever call me to preach. I don't deserve it. I'm thankful. I'm humbled, But I don't deserve it. Why? Because there's no boasting in the flesh. How could there be? If you genuinely look in the mirror of God's word, you will see how ugly you are. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short sure of the glory of God. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. How could we boast? In this life, we'll never arrive. The the sanctification process, that process in which God, after we're saved, is molding us into His image is a lifelong journey. We're never going to arrive. We we never deserve it. We're never never, uh, uh, um, qualified of it. And yet there was a group saying, uh, look at me, and look how good I am. And you need to be as good, otherwise you're not saved. Says, hey, beware of those who tell you to trust in the flesh or have confidence in the flesh, because he says, <clears throat> those who are of the, uh, we are the in which worship God in the spirit, and we rejoice in Christ. There's that word again, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. There's nothing of myself in which I trust. And hey, remember chapter 2. Let this mind be in you. For a person to be saved, I I do believe they have to realize they deserve hell. There's nothing worthy of them that God would die and save them. It's not me. It's his infinite, matchless, unconditional love for me that God commendeth his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says you better not be trusting in the flesh. You better beware of those who tell you you should or need to and then Paul goes into one of my favorite passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. He starts giving you a little bit of his testimony. Now most people who know Paul know his testimony a little bit were that he was walking on, onto Damascus to be able to persecute and kill Christians. I mean, before Paul was saved, he was a killer of Christians. I mean, we have the story of, of Stephen being stoned to death having preached the gospel and who's over there consenting unto the death who's over there saying get them it's none other than Saul who later becomes Paul and he's holding people's coats and cloaks and he's saying get him get him and he went unto the priest and says give me permission to go into Syria so I can persecute those that are found in the way in the as Christians and let me bring them unto bound here and let me bring them to death and we know how that he saw and heard the voice and was saved there on the road to Damascus. But here in this passage, we have a little bit of the background of Paul, of who he was before he was saved. Look at verse number four. And again, the context is, who should trust in their flesh? And basically what he's going to say, if anybody could trust in their flesh, it's me. It's as though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any man, other man thinketh that he hath, where if he might trust in the flesh, I more. He says, if there's anybody out there who thinks they could have earned their way to salvation, I promise you, I would have earned it faster. If anybody was good enough, perfect enough, religious enough, sincere enough, bold enough, it was me. There's not a person out there that I can think of that is, was more capable of getting to heaven in their own flesh than me and yet, I realized there's no way. So, 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 some skeptic might be like, "What do you mean, Paul? That you had the most that you had the most ability to have confidence in your flesh? Who were you?" He says, "Let me tell you who I was." He says, "Verse number five, and again, he's talking to now those that would understand Jewish understanding of things. Circumcised the eighth day, check. Of the stock of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. And Hebrew." of Hebrews as touching the law of pharisee check concerning zeal persecuting the church touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless Paul says everything you needed to do to be a perfect Jewish man, I was. I was circumcised the eighth day just like all little good Jewish boys from good Jewish families were. And I was of the stock of Israel. You trace my bloodlines, you can trace them right back to Abraham. And if you were to say, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, there was nobody more pure in bloodline than me. By the way, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, which one was Jacob's favorite outside of Joseph? Benjamin. And and even if you're thinking about, well, those two northern tribes, they all went astray. Which ones didn't? Judah and Benjamin. Paul's saying, I was of one of the most elite tribes, not like the Reuben and Naphtali tribes. I was of Benjamin. He says that's touching the law. I was a Pharisee. Pharisees were so religious and righteous, they would not only endeavor to keep the law, they would write extra laws and try to prove to everybody else how religious they were. Let me keep not only the commandments in the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, let me also write extra ones so I can prove to you how righteous I am. The Jews have a book called the Mishnah. The Mishnah basically gives you the understanding of what you can do on keeping the Sabbath. Here's how many steps you can walk. You know that there are Hasidic Jews in in New York City who won't even pick up a phone on a Sabbath? Because they consider that work. Uh, Most buildings that occupy heavy Jewish communities, they will have uh, doormen pushing the elevator buttons for them because they can sit at work. They want to prove, look how righteous I am. Look how confident in the flesh I can be. And Paul says, that was me. He said, you want to talk about zeal? Do you know what zeal is? Passion. You don't know how passionate and how convinced I was that Judaism is the right way? You don't know how convinced I was that, that, that the, the high priest, An- uh, Annas and, and Caiaphas, were doing the right thing? I went out and persecuted the church. I would bust in the door of a church, and I would rip out men, women, and children. I'd rip out that preacher. I'd rip out the women and their, mo- their moms and the daughters, and I would separate them, and I would have them killed. Why? Because they were preaching something other than the law. They were preaching that there was the new King Jesus. So I had more passion and more zeal. I, I had the right heritage. I, I had the right position as a Pharisee. I had the right passion. And then he says here in verse number six, touching the righteous, which is in the law, blameless. He said, you could have evaluated me with a checklist and said, does he keep the law? Check, 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 check. I basically lived the perfect life according to Jewish standards. And then he realized, when he met Christ, I'm not even far, anywhere near perfect. His point is, if anybody could get the salvation by works, it was him. And what did it happen? He realized that he was totally wrong. He realized that he had abandoned all that he was trusting in. That those works, and those re- that religion, and that sincerity, and everything, that passion for God, all was thrown aside. For faith in Christ. Hey, can I tell you something? There are a lot of religious people that are going to end up in hell. There are a lot of passionate people that will end up in hell. There are a lot of good moral people that will end up in hell. I I was having a debate with somebody in Times Square about midnight. We were doing some street preaching out there. It was was a blast. Uh, I was with a group that had no fear. And I was like, (gasps) they preached on the subway. I've told the church this story many times, but... Man, I was sitting on, we were driving, we were riding in from like Jamaica to Penn Station on the subway, and I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, one of the guys gets up, one of the students gets up and says, ladies and gentlemen, you didn't know you were going to church today, but this is the soul train. I was like, what is going on? (laughs) What in the world? But I thought, man, what an awesome thing, because he wasn't trying to do anything but to preach the gospel, and God actually got in my heart and said, you better get up there, bold buddy. I was like, hmm. and finally I did, but that's not the point I'm making. So that night we were in Times Square and we were just sharing the gospel. We were handing out tracts. There was somebody preaching. And um, I got into this debate with an atheist. I love apologetics. And this person, as I was going through the gospel with them, basically as he was understanding me, he said, so you're saying that if Hitler repented, and called on Jesus to save him, Jesus would have forgiven him and, and brought him to heaven. I said, Yes. And you're telling me that Mother Teresa, if she in all her good works in India, and if she'd never repented and never called on Christ to save her, she'd end up in hell? I said, unfortunately, yes. Well, I don't want a God that does that. And I said to him, What you're saying is, you're the standard. And everybody better than you deserves heaven, and everybody worse than you deserves hell. That's what you're saying. Because so I'm not saying that. I said, No, you are. When you realize that here's the standard, it's Christ, and He's perfect, it doesn't matter how close to perfection you get, you still fall short of it. No matter how sincere, how much good works, how, how absolutely passionate, how absolutely dedicated, it doesn't matter if you wake up every morning with the rosaries, it doesn't matter if you go to church every single day, it doesn't matter if you, if you give 99% of your income to the church, none of that gets you to heaven. None of it. And Paul's basically saying, I did all that, I was all that. Everything there. Now look what he says in verse 7. This is going to start bringing it home. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So all those things that I accomplished and I achieved and all those things that I did, I counted them as loss. A loss is like you make an investment and you realize it ain't working out. And you say, I just got to count this loss. I just got to cut ties with this. Paul's saying, I spent my whole life from childhood. Now we know from other places in Scripture that he was trained on the Gamaliel, one of the elite teachers of the Jewish law in in the entire Israel. He achieved the Pharisee and possibly even the Sanhedrin positions. He said, I spent my whole life Achieving and accomplishing and doing and achieving and accomplishing and doing and achieving and accomplishing and doing. And I got to this place where I had to consider it's either Christ and I throw all this away or I hold on dearly to all I was working for. And then I realized this is true. And so this is true. I cut the saws of loss. He basically said, I wasted my whole life doing. Because I met the one who did. Who on the cross says, it is finished. The one who paid the price. And Paul says, I, but what things were gained to me, all those I accomplished, that accumulation of things I counted as loss, I said, no, I was wrong. You know one the hardest things for people? Especially adults. Now, children who come to faith, it's simple. They have childlike faith. But adults who had lived out in the world for so long have been inundated with false teachings of humanism and and secular biology and all that other nonsense, atheism, agnosticism, all that stuff that's in the world. They get to a place where they realize okay, so you're saying in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Or all this science that supposedly I was taught that contradicts that truth. And all the things I thought in the smorgasbord of philosophy and doctrines that I thought my whole life, kind of pick and choose my own way, I was wrong. And the gospel would say, dead wrong. And the person now is sitting there and saying, either I count it as loss for Christ... Or I could be like the rich young ruler who goes to Jesus and says, sir, he says, um, how may I inherit eternal life? And he says, all the commandments I've kept from the time I was a youth. And so Jesus, endeavoring to expose that not only that was untrue, says, why don't you go sell all that you have and follow me? And the Bible says the rich young ruler left there devastated and disappointed he was unwilling to count it as loss. I'd imagine that Agrippa, when he was faced with Paul, and when he said, almost thou persuadest to me to be a Christian, he perhaps was at that place where he was considering counted all a loss, but then thought, if I get saved now, I might lose my position here in Rome as a Roman uh, uh, leader. I might lose all the people that faithfully follow me. I might lose all the money that I incurred And so he rejected the gospel. You know, there's a lot of people who end up in hell simply because they're unwilling to to see what Paul saw here. He said, I counted all that loss, all that confidence in the flesh. I realized it was all for naught. Yea, doubtless. He said, I'm not even doubting this. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ. He says, everything that I accumulate, that big pile of, of accolades and prestige and position and, and wealth, and all those people that followed me and looked to me, saw the leader, saw the leader, Saul's name in lights. He said, I cut that as law. That was... And I'm just using a Bible word here. Pile of dung. He said that was garbage. That was nothing. Basically you have these, these two things. The Bible says what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You can accumulate everything but lose your own soul. What good does that do? Versus accumulating everything, cutting it as a loss that you may have cry. And Paul says, don't you dare start having confidence in the flesh. It's nothing but garbage. It's a lie from Satan. You're not good enough to get to heaven, neither am I. But Jesus Christ, perfect, righteous, Son of God, God in the flesh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. These things have written unto you, that, that, uh, that, that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And he said, I counted all those as lost, as a pile of garbage. So I can know Christ, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Remember the parable. It's a short little one verse parable. The kingdom, of God, or to say, kingdom of heaven, sure. the Kingdom of God is like a man walking in a field, and when he and he stumbles upon a treasure, and when he sees the value of that treasure, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field so he can have that treasure. That's basically what Paul did. He counted it as loss. It wasn't anything. This world has grips on a lot of people. I wonder how many people have achieved so much in life, so valuable, that when offered salvation freely, they see that they might have to give up something, or it might cost them the loss of something, and they say, no. We say, I love what Jim Elliot said. He is no fool to give that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. He says, "I want to Christ. I want to know Christ." Verse number nine being found in Him, not having mine own righteousness. See, I am in Him. I am a believer. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If any man be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God, by faith. See, when I got saved, It wasn't because I achieved. It wasn't because I did good. It wasn't because I figured it out. It was because Christ, who was perfect, called unto me. And when I got saved, he imputed his righteousness in my account. That means my sins were taken to him in his account. And his righteousness, not mine, but his, was put on my account. Then when God looks at a believer, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And so when Christ was on the cross, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is the cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because it was at that moment he was paying for the sins of the world. My sin on him, that his righteousness might be put on me. And by the way, everybody who's tuning in now, if you'd never been born again, if you've never been saved, if you've never had Christ's righteousness imputed upon you, Today could be that day. And Paul is reasoning with them. He's reckoning unto them. He's preaching unto them. He's saying, listen, I was trusting in myself. I was trusting in my goodness, but I realized that my righteousness is just a pile of garbage, that it's not what I can do, but it's what Christ, who is righteousness, is what He has already done in my faith in Him alone, counting all this but loss, that I might win the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Look at verse 10. This ought to be, if you write in your Bible, this ought to be one you highlight, circle, underline,
1: memorize,
0: that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable unto His death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, my heart's desire is just to know him I want to know him in the power of his resurrection the power of God that took God who died in the flesh and rose himself out of the grave three days later three days later and rolled the stone away he is risen he is not here I want to know that power I want to know Christ and I want to know his power but don't cut that last part out either I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. Maybe not so much. Paul says, you know what my heart's desire is? Not being Saul of Tarsus. It's not being this great man of prestige and this man that everyone follows. It's not to have all these accolades. It's not to have all these riveting things. My heart's desire is that I might know him and know the power of the resurrection. And I want to know him even if it means the fellowship of his suffering. Even if I have to suffer for Christ's name. Where is Paul writing this from? He is writing from prison. He knows what it's like to suffer. And he knows what it's like to suffer in his name. He is sitting there in prison and he's saying, I'm beginning to understand just a speck of what the fellowship of his suffering was. As the night before Jesus was to be crucified, he was in the garden and said, Father, if there be any way for this cup to pass from me, nevertheless not my will but thine be done. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That I one day too might be resurrected from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about that if Christ rose again, so too we who are believers rise again. Now, can I leave you believers with a few things? We talked a lot to unbelievers as Paul's giving his testimony. As Paul's saying, listen, all that you're trusting and leave it aside, don't trust in the flesh, don't let anyone twist the gospel, it's not by Jesus plus works, it's not by Jesus plus righteousness, it's not by Jesus plus church things, it's Christ alone. Lay all that you've accomplished aside, it's not worth it. You can't take a hearse with you uh, into the afterlife, and you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive, so just cut ties with it and just cling to Christ. Be saved today. Be born again. Cry out to God for forgiveness of sins and salvation. Can I reason with all of us here today, believers and unbelievers alike, just really quick, finally, brethren, number one, nothing you have achieved could possibly, or possibly achieve, can possibly compare to having Christ. Nothing you have achieved or could achieve could ever compare to Christ. But how... Nonchalant, do we treat that? Y- you have this book. It's the most precious book ever written. Found on the shelves of even Dollar Tree. Accessible to just about everybody online. And yet, for most people, they either leave it on the shelf, don't have one at all, never consider it, consider it archaic. You can't know him without knowing the book. How much do we know him how much do we desire to know him I i dare say that there are plenty of christians right now that are far more upset that sports got canceled than church got canceled there are probably far more articles being read about coronavirus than there are passages about jesus i'm not trying to be cliche i'm trying to be real and saying, listen, if knowing Him is the greatest thing we can ever do, then why do we treat that as just some shelved thing? I'm talking to myself included. Why do not we want to know more? To have Christ would be worth losing all there is in the world. Did you hear me? To have Christ would be worth losing everything in the world. And the goal is to know Him in His power. Can I dare challenge you with this? Don't ever do church without begging for the power of God to be there. Church without the power of God is just a religious meeting of men. There are a lot of religious meeting of men, and there are very powerful leaders who are good at mobilizing people, And they can do whatever they want to do, but there's no power of God there. No, we understand power of God isn't always equal numbers. Noah had the power of God upon him and no one listened. Jeremiah had the power of God upon him and no one listened. Jonah didn't want the power of God, but God and everybody listened. But I want to know the power of God. That comes with the realization that you can't and you desperately need Him. There have been times I got in the pulpit trusting in myself for a sermon and I can promise you there was a falling flat on my face where I couldn't finish that sermon fast enough. There have been times in my life where I fell on my face and my sin did it. And God's grace picked me up where now I'm like, I can't. I need to know your power, Lord. If you don't show up, it's going to be a disaster. I have nothing in myself that can naturally do this, Lord. We need you. And these people need you. They don't need me. They don't need a sermon. They need you. They need the Holy Spirit of God and the power of God to be there in their midst. They need to do supernatural works in their midst by your hand. So we need to seek your face. Because we can't do it. How much do you desire the power of God? And friends, what about the fellowship of his suffering? La, 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 la. Sometimes God calls us on suffering. There might be people out there right now suffering with sickness who are faithful men of God, women of God. You might be wondering, I don't know why. But we know Jesus suffered. And we know sometimes He allows the sufferings of this world to happen to believers for a reason that we may or may never know. But let me encourage you with this, that the joy that we receive in heaven far outweighs any of the suffering we face here. Friends, do you know Jesus? Believer, how much do you know Jesus? How much do you desire His power? Would you get on your knees and maybe you're at home? Maybe you're in the car. I don't know where you are. But if you're not a believer, meaning if you die today, you don't know for sure you're going to heaven. Would you get on your knees before God and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for trusting in my works. Forgive me for holding on so long. Save me, Lord. Save me, Jesus. Forgive me. Would you call on Jesus today? If you need help with that, and you're on the New Village Facebook page, you can comment below. You can uh, private message them. You can private message me if you can find me. We'd love to hear and help you. If you're a believer and you've just been coasting, shame on us. God, I need your power. I don't need church as usual. I don't need a play church. I don't need religious. I need your power. I need your hand. I need you to do work. Please. Please. From whence cometh our help? Our help cometh from the Lord. If you're at home, let's bow our heads. If you're in here, let's bow our heads. No peeking there at home. I'll know. Father, we thank you. Lord, I pray that you bless New Village Church. I pray that you anoint every single person that speaks from this pulpit. Lead your people here, Father, in your paths of righteousness. Father, I pray for new hope. Pray, Father, that every time anyone comes to our pulpit, Lord, they be filled with your power and anointed. Father, I thank you so much that you're so long-suffering, I'm so thankful that you forgive us for all our inadequacies, all our transgressions, all our iniquities. You've laid them on your Son, And you remember our sin no more. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we come unto you now, Lord. I don't know the hearts of everybody that's listening. I don't even know if anyone is listening. But Father, you do. And Lord, I pray there's a single one out there who doesn't doesn't know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would touch their heart, draw them in unto you. May they call upon you. May today be the day of salvation. May they think the greatest thing that ever happened was this virus. That they might tune in and hear the Word of God and be saved and they count all for loss for the excellency of the knowledge of christ may you save some today lord for us believers we certainly know we have not arrived we certainly know we don't deserve but lord i'm begging you for your power i'm begging that you send forth a revival both in our hearts in our churches and thirdly lord in our country and in this world even May your power be evident. May when the gospel be preached, it not just be words that come off our tongue and out of our lips, uh, Lord, but it would be of the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that the power that, that, that rose Christ from the dead, we would know, would be evident in our lives, in our churches, that you would set the pulpits ablaze with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Help us to go forth boldly preaching Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone suffering, May they know that they have a God in heaven who knows what it's like to suffer. And may they cast all their burden upon you, for your yoke is easy, your burden is light, casting all their care upon you, for you care for them. And may they hide under the shelter of your wings. And Father, now we pray in this time, in Jesus' precious name, amen.